Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. Joined, as always, with Cole Little. This is Dustin Reese. And, Cole, how was your weekend? It was good. How was yours? How was the Packers game? Uh, it was actually very hot and very humid. I think it was like 84 degrees, and it felt like 96, so it was pretty pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can empathize. Typical preseason game where the starters played maybe one or two series minus Aaron Rodgers and the rest of those people, and then everything else is pretty much backups. Yeah. Yep, sounds about right. So let's start the show off today with the Chicago Cubs, where for the first time since trading away all of their key pieces, they won a game at home. Marks their first win in their last 14 tries at Wrigley Field, which was a new franchise burst in terms of longest home losing streaks. And some of the new players on the team, like Michael Hermosillo and Frank Schwindel, did not even know the Cubs had a theme song when they won the game, which kind of goes to show you how long it's been since they have won. But, I mean, it does feel good for them to get the win and kind of get that monkey off their back that they've been dealing with the last month or so of the season. But outside of that, there really hasn't been much to cheer about if you're a Cubs fan. Obviously, they've still been a fairly competitive team, but coming up on the short end of the stick. But the only good thing that's coming out of all this is seeing a lot of the players that are finally getting their everyday opportunities like Wisdom and Ortega and Schwindel. They're finally showing the Cubs what they can do in terms of being a player. And that might help them discover some unknown players to kind of add to the roster next year. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, before I, dive into that i didn't see those comments did schwindel and hermosillo actually admit to not knowing about go cubs go yeah so after the game yesterday michael hermosillo went into david ross's office and asked why there was a song playing he's he from no- illinois by the way <laughs> yeah he never had that song when he was watching the cubs growing up so he had no idea that that was a theme song Frank Schwindel knew they had a song, but obviously he never heard it because they haven't won at home since he's been there. So Ross was kind of laughing about it, basically saying, it's only been a month since we won the game at home, but you have some of these players that it seems like it's been a lifetime. Wow. Yeah, it's not really something I would admit. <laughs> I was those players not knowing that. But yeah, um, has been a while, obviously, uh, you know, a new low. I mean, the the – um, losing 12 games in a row, which, I mean, I guess last time we were on, they had just snapped the 12-game overall losing streak. And, yeah, now just snapping the 13-game home losing streak, which, like you said, is a franchise worst in, you know, in the entire history of the Cubs franchise. It's pretty much a new low, um, and it took a comeback win over a the – worst road team in baseball, a team that's like making history in terms of the disparity between how they play at home versus how they play on the road in the Rockies. And the worst um, bullpen too, which helps. Yeah, true. Yeah. And they, they've scored, um, what, five runs in the final two innings, including Ortega's walk-off two-run homer and, and 
snapped a streak. But yeah, down 3-0 in that one and later 4-1. Um, Hendricks with his first inning woes that had plagued him at times this season. Um, but yeah, he avoided the, the losing decision last night. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's been tough sledding, obviously. And they miraculously won the you know, series finale against the Reds, uh, where Adrian Sampson made the spot start against Tyler Malley. And, you know, Malley, who seems like from time to time has his troubles against the Cubs, he got racked and they won that one for a two game to give them a two game winning streak, but then get got swept at home by the Royals, which is, just, you know, the, the Royals who are quite bad um and that uh, that was pretty embarrassing in and of itself especially the one hitter where their only hit was a two-run homer by cubs only hit was a two-run homer by patrick wisdom but yeah and i mean you know fortunate to win last night's game monday night's game um yeah it's just been tough sledding obviously i mean you know jason hayward's back in action uh, you know, and Wilson Contreras, it sounds like we'll be back in action soon, but you know, so they may get some help in that regard with, with him coming back, but you know, it's just been tough. I mean, Nico Horner, we saw him re-aggravate his oblique issue and his rehab game, but you know, sounds like he's going to still be back and, and trying to make a return at later this week. Um, and work himself back from that. But, you know, that's part of it is having to go without the, you know, the the veteran guy. I mean, of course, Nico's not a veteran, but somebody who started a lot of games for the Cubs. And having to go with this sort of makeshift, you know, at times really just is kind of a glorified AAA starting lineup. And, I mean, it really shows how far they've fallen that Patrick Wisdom is like the star of the – starting lineup this guy who you know nobody had heard of prior to may um and you know what he's been able to do with this team obviously hit 20 home runs now but yeah i mean it's it's just tough you know they have a lot of young players and a lot of inexperienced players and um you know trying to to make do with what they can but you know they'll I mean, we'll we'll see what they can do uh, in this series against the Rockies. They could this could maybe be their last great chance at a sweep. Uh, you never know, or at least a, a three-game sweep, because um, I know they have a couple two-game series against the Twins coming up that they could maybe sweep one or both of those. But yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough for this team. You know, I said last week, I think they'll avoid losing a hundred games, but they might not avoid losing 95 games um so it's, it's going to be tough and you know they're going to have to make the most of every opportunity that they can to win games and you know it's um we'll, we'll see what they're uh made of some of these young players and obviously september call-ups will be here before you know it i'm glad that you uh brought up nico horner there because i kind of wanted to ask you this in the regards of Nico Horner's future with the team. And a lot of people feel that Horner should be the starting shortstop next year and should be with this team for the foreseeable future. But 
from all indications that he's given the Cubs since he was drafted, the guy simply cannot stay healthy. He played a total of, I think, 94 minor league games across two minor league seasons because he was dealing with injuries. And then go to 2020, he missed time with some minor injuries, but then he had suffered the hamstring injury earlier this year, now the oblique injury. So he lost basically another entire season for the most part of development. And you kind of got to start to wonder about his future, especially with the Cubs trading for Nick Madrigal, who's most likely going to take over the second base job next year. We've already seen Jed Hoyer unload Chris Bryant and Javier Baez and a Kyle Schwarber not tendering him. And a lot of the players that Theo Epstein drafted over the past 10 years with this franchise, Jed Hoyer has kind of basically traded him away. And that leads me to the question, do you think Hoyer may not necessarily give up on Horner, but do you think Horner might know – do you think Horner may no longer be in the Cubs' plans with Hoyer possibly trying to just get rid of everything Epstein has done and kind of going with his own way? Because if you listen to the comments that Trevor Story made last night following his team's loss to the Cubs, it seems like Trevor Story really wants to come to Chicago and play shortstop. And if Trevor wow. Story is considering coming to the Cubs to play shortstop, you do whatever you can to get him in free agency next year, which basically means – Horner could be the odd man out. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty big development. Um, yeah, I mean, Nico, you know, I, I feel like unless some great situation falls into place, such as being able to acquire Trevor Story, I feel like he'll be back in the fold next year and get, you know, a full season where he's really vital to the Cubs' success and, and gets a chance to show what he's made of. But – yeah, I mean, so far his major league tenure hasn't been particularly impressive. Um, of, of course, you know, I mean, he's had little spurts here and there, such as like that Padre series when he first got called up a few years ago. But yeah, by and large, hasn't really, you know, shown too much consistency at the plate, uh, makes some pretty good defensive plays on a semi-regular basis. But – um, the big thing is, is he has to really prove he's a consistent hitter who can get on base. Um, kind of disappeared by and large for a good portion of the 2020 season. And then, yeah, I mean, this year, of course, you had the unfortunate injury where, you know, he ran into Ian Happ while pursuing the pop up and, um, you know, now the bleak issue that he's dealing with. But, yeah, he has dealt with his fair share of injuries as a professional player, whether it's in the majors or the minors. And, you know, that that's a key thing is, is being able to stay healthy, of course, you know, especially when you're going to be viewed as um, potentially an everyday shortstop, a guy who could potentially be a leadoff hitter, somebody who will look be viewed as, you know, a spark plug who can get on base for the Cubs. You know, being able to play game in and game out is important. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Horner, or excuse me, if Hoyer moved on from Horner, um, you know, for greener pastures for a better shortstop, um, you know, for the reasons you listed. I mean, it seems like Hoyer's trying to carve out his own team and, and his own path. And uh, yeah, Nico just hasn't 
you know, it's not like he's he's proven that he's someone who can lead the Cubs through this rebuild. Um, he he potentially could, but like we haven't seen enough to be able to indicate that. You know, he he's somebody who is going to be extremely vital to the Cubs' future and could be the everyday shortstop or second baseman or whatever for the Cubs. You know, three, four, or five years from now. So. Yeah, I wouldn't be stunned by that, by Hoyer moving on from him. But, you know, I think it'll take something viable in terms of getting a, a more promising shortstop for him to move on from Nico this coming offseason. Like, I don't think he'll just trade him away for a couple prospects or whatever. Or, you know, I, I think he'll either – you know, Nico either get a shot to play every day in a rebuilding season and prove what he's made of, or the Cup Hoyer will move on from him prior to next season, you know, for somebody like Trevor Story or a more proven shortstop. And if they do decide to sign Trevor Story and then ultimately they kind of I mean, potentially you could still stick Nico Horner at shortstop and move Trevor Story over to third but I don't know if Story would be on board with that at all. But if the Cubs were to oh, – So is Story going to be a free agent this offseason? Yeah, Story, yeah, Story is going to be a free agent this year, which is why everyone was surprised to see him not traded at the yeah, deadline. that's right. That's right, yeah, because he was mentioned in a bunch of trade discussions and the Rockies hung on to him. So, yeah, that. with that being said, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if Hoyer was – you know, if he's able to reach an agreement with Story – um, yeah, I could see him trade. Then he might be willing to trade away um, Horner for just you know a few prospects or whatever. But something has to be in place. Like I don't think he'll just move on from him. No, I think for the sake if of he it, is going to trade him, if he is going to trade Horner too, prospects or not, prospects are good. But you would think that Hoyer would target at least one major league starting pitcher in that deal also instead of just trading him away for like two or three prospects, you would think that he would try to get even a back of the rotation starter for that matter. Like Kyle, not even a Kyle Gibson, but some of these mid rotation pitchers that have been having good years this year, you bring a guy like Nico Horner into the fold, you can get a mid rotation arm, stick him in the back of the rotation behind your young guys and Justin Steele, Thompson and Elzelai, plus get a couple of prospects on top of that. True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'll just have to see what's in Hoyer's game plan. If he's going to try to acquire for this offseason or just kind of go in with a young team and just make it a all out rebuilding year. And then you have the White Sox who continue to just dominate in the AL Center, but they've kind of run into some tough sledding the last couple of weeks with uh, some very tough opponents. I Two or three to the Yankees, but all three of those games are very well-played games that went down to the wire. Then it took three or four from the Oakland Athletics before losing two or three to the best team in the American League this past weekend in Tampa Bay, and then they go and drop a two-to-one decision to Toronto last night. Even with the White Sox kind of struggling to pile up wins in the past week here, they're still 18 games above 500. They still lead their division by nine games. And their schedule is going to get a lot easier after this stretch, plus getting Grandal back. 
White Sox fans shouldn't worry about the way that they're playing right now because they are one of only two teams in Major League Baseball that has a winning record against teams who would be in the playoffs right now. I believe them and the Dodgers are the only two teams that could say that. But the other, the only concern that I would have if I'm a White Sox fan is what they've seen from Craig Kimbrell since he's gone from the north side to the south side. Uh, when he was with the Cubs, he had a 0.48 earned run average, which was best in the major leagues. And since going over to the White Sox, his ERA is over a a lot of people feel that it's because of the role Tony La Russa has put him in, which is the setup role in the eighth inning as opposed to the closer in the ninth. And Kimbrell's already voiced his opinion many times that he does not feel comfortable pitching in the eighth inning and that he feels a lot more comfortable pitching in the ninth. I know Liam Hendricks is one of the leaders in saves this year, but Liam Hendricks has had his issues in the ninth inning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kimbrell has already expressed that he does not like to pitch in the eighth inning. I don't know what Tony Larusa is waiting for, and I don't know what else he needs to see from Kimbrell's struggles in the eighth inning to finally just man up and tell Hendricks, hey, I understand I signed you here as the closer, but we need Kimbrell to pitch the ninth because that's what's going to give us our best chance to win and make a deep playoff run. Yeah, that was an odd decision that I was a bit surprised to find out, especially considering Hendricks has more experience pitching, you know, in a setup role or just, you know, more he he has more experience serving and more of just a like traditional closer role come in in the ninth with a lead and mow him down, which is what Kimbrell's done, been asked to do his whole career. Um, Yeah, odd decision. And I mean, you know, Kimbrell, by all accounts, is a better, more reliable closer than Hendricks. Has obviously had a better career, and yeah, Hendricks is you know really good. He's really coming to his own these past few years. Um, you know, with the A's and now with the White Sox, but yeah, can have his share of struggles. I mean, he's one of these kind of fireballer, hothead types who can maybe you know get in his own way at times or or maybe get a little frustrated and, you know, causes them to uh, make some mistakes. Whereas Kimbrell, obviously calm, cool, and collected has been his whole career. That's what makes him so great in that ninth inning role. I mean, he's, you know, a a Mariano Rivera, Trevor Hoffman type, one of the all-time great closers and, you know, a future Hall of Famer. So it doesn't really make sense that La Russa, especially as a traditionalist like he is, an old-school guy, that he wouldn't use Kimbrell as the ninth-inning closer. I I just felt that decision was odd. I mean, I know there were analysts after that trade was made, uh, you know, White Sox acquiring, speculated that that could be the case, that Kimbrell could be used in the eighth inning. But I was – I kind of doubted that. I didn't see why that would be – you know, the the route that La Russa would take, especially considering how dominant Kimbrell has been this year, especially in the ninth inning, you know, with a lead, with a save on the line. And you're right. I mean, there are guys who, you know, if, if there's not a save on the line or if it's not the ninth inning and they're viewed as, okay, you got to go all out and get these three outs and either close out the game or maybe get it to extras, um, they're not as good. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Kimbrell has shown that 
so far with the White Sox, he's obviously not he's obviously not been nearly as effective as he was, you know, the entire his entire season with the Cubs. Um, so yeah, that that is something that Larusa might look to change, uh, you know, because obviously that's gonna be huge for that team come playoff time is having a, a carved out role for who the closer is with really no questions about it. So um, I think that's something that Larusa might need to address in the very near future. And this might make me sound selfish because I'm more of a Cubs fan than a White Sox fan. And I was extremely happy when the Cubs obviously got Madrigal and given what I've seen out of Cody Hoyer, I think Cody Hoyer is going to be a very valuable piece of this Cubs bullpen in the future. Cause he's kind of like an Andrew Miller from the right hand, right handed side. But wouldn't it just mm-hmm. be kind of a slap in the face of the White Sox if LaRusa keeps the late inning relief rolls the way they are right now and Kimbrell decides not to exercise that player option in his final year of his contract and hits free agency next year versus if LaRusa would make the switch and move Kimbrell to the closer role, chances are Kimbrell would then exercise that fourth year option. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that needs to be thought about. And, you know, I can imagine that the White Sox front office has kind of stayed out of, is kind of staying out of LaRusa's way and let him, letting him, you know, do what he wants to do as, as a veteran. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that might be a, a situation where the front office can kind of step in and, and you know, pull the strings there because – yeah, if Kimbrell's not happy there in his role and, you know, knows that, that Hendricks will still be around, then why would he want to stay there? I mean, especially considering this season has been all about the rejuvenation, at least when he was with the Cubs, the rejuvenation of his career and him getting back to being the best closer in baseball. So I don't know why the White Sox wouldn't utilize him as, as the traditional true closer. So... Yeah, I mean, you know, we saw Hendricks blow the late lead in the Field of Dreams game when, it, when you know, he had a chance to close that out, finish it off that game. Um, but then, you know, got bailed out by Tim Anderson and his walk-off home run. But, yeah, I mean, that was obviously a lackluster outing. And, you know, we saw recently uh, Kimbrell in his role uh, – give up that home run to Andrew Romine, um, you know, against the Cubs to blow that lead. But then, of course, the White Sox went on to win uh, and bailed him out there. But, yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen them struggle in their roles and have to wonder if maybe if the White Sox would be better suited to switch him around uh, for sure. And I, I think they would be better suited to switch him around and – I think if the White Sox had a smaller lead in their division, I think LaRusa makes that move. But because they have such a comfortable lead in that division, and regardless if they play 500 baseball or not the rest of the way, they're still the far superior team in that division. So I don't think anyone's going to catch them anyways. But come playoff time, I'm not going to be shocked at all to see LaRusa make that move for the one, for the sole purpose that Liam Hendricks has only been in the playoffs two times in his career as a pitcher. 
and he has one career postseason save, which came last year with Oakland versus Craig Kimbrell, I think has like 18 or 19 playoff saves. You're going to want your best guy going in the ninth inning come playoff time. And regardless what the numbers are going to show, Kimbrell is your best option. Right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, again, I just don't really understand the decision, um, you know, especially considering Kimbrell is a better closer in general than Hendricks is, uh, you know, more experienced, more proven. Um, yeah, so, you know, that that is something that is is worth addressing, Um you know, and it, it's it's important. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen the White Sox. You know, they've they've gotten some good wins recently, but then had some, you know, lackluster losses. Got beat nine to nothing by the Rays, but also beat the A's nine to nothing not long before that, and were even able to win that game against the A's where Lance Lynn got thrown out in the early innings, ejected from his start for tossing his belt at the umpire for the substance check. Uh, they were able to pull out that win three to two. So, yeah, I mean, they're still, you know, winning for the most part, obviously. I mean, they've now lost three in a row, but, you know, can't imagine that losing streak will last for too long as they take on the Blue Jays in the midst of a four-game series in Toronto. Uh, so they're still the cream of the crop in that division. And maybe that is part of why LaRusa hasn't made that change because he doesn't feel any pressure from, you know, the other, any of the other four teams in AL Central. Um, but it's still something as we close in on September here in the final, you know, full month of the regular season, it is something that needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. And now we'll switch over to the football side of things where things went about as bad as possible for the Chicago Bears on Saturday as they just got lit up by the Buffalo Bills in every facet of the game, especially in the first half when they were down 34-6 to at halftime. And it wasn't Josh Allen or Stephon Diggs, the ones that was torching them. It happened to be their former starting quarterback, Mitch Trubisky, who had preseason or not, had the best first half of his entire life, which the numbers he put up in the first half would have been great full game numbers for him when he was a Chicago Bear. And then you had the Bears' offensive line continue to show you that they need a lot of work as they almost just got Justin Fields killed in the third quarter when his helmet and his headband flew off. Oh. You look at the way that this game unfolded, and Buffalo's going to be a great football team again this year. No one's going to take that away from them. They were one game away from the Super Bowl last year and have a very good shot to make another deep run this year. But when you look at the way Mitch Trubisky played, granted, yes, some of the drives he had were against second and third stringers, but you saw a lot of what the Bears were hoping for when he was here. And that makes you wonder if the play calling was different in Chicago, if that's the Trubisky they would have had. And if that's the Trubisky they would have had, I don't think Justin Fields is here. But then on the flip side, is the play calling going to hold Justin Fields back this year? And do you think that's part of the reason why Nagy is going with Andy Dalton in week one, knowing that he's not going to turn Justin Fields loose as much as people want him to? 
Yeah, I mean, it does make you wonder, you know, and, and Fields is going to start this weekend in the preseason finale. Dalton will get rested. But, you know, I mean, Nagy seems to be sticking to his guns with using Dalton, as, with starting Dalton um, in the regular season. And, you know, of course, we'll see how short his leash is. Uh, but, yeah, that was a lackluster performance. I mean, obviously don't want to look too much into it because it's the preseason and the offensive line is so beat up, or at least it wasn't that game. Of course, they'll now be getting, you know, Jason Peters in the fold. Uh, Ifedi was just activated off the pup list after dealing with a hip flexor, so he's back in action. Um, of course, not having Tevin Jenkins for what I can imagine is will be most of the season, if not I think all they said Tevin Jenkins will – be eligible to come back in week six because the procedure he had is only a six to eight week procedure. Oh, okay. Well, that's good news. Well, he'll be on the pup uh, list to start the season, which keeps you, oh, six weeks, obviously. And then obviously he'll need probably a good two or three weeks to get back up to full speed. So you're probably looking at week 10 when Jenkins will probably be able to finally yeah. see the field. So, yeah, so have to go more than likely most of the regular season without him. Um, and then, you know, I mean, that that's going to be a big storyline is, is what, you know, how the offensive line fares. Because, I mean, you mentioned Trubisky, of course. And you have to wonder how Trubisky would have done last year, Foles as well, um, if the offensive line were better. Uh, of course, offensive line struggles – have plagued the Bears these past few seasons. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it's it's going to be a huge question mark because Dalton and Fields pretty much had to run for their lives against the Bills. Um, you know, and I mean, Dalton got booed at times, but, you know, really hard to blame him with all the pressure he constantly faced in that first half. Um, you know, of course, he had the the touchdown where Rodney Adams made the crazy catch behind his defender's back and, and ran it in for a 73-yard score. But, you know, other than that, not a lot of excitement in that game for the Bears. Um, and, yeah, Fields got blown up on that sack that was waved off due to the high hit uh, called roughing the – resulted in roughing the passer call but yeah he was still just absolutely blown up on that play i mean nobody was was blocking that that defender uh andre smith as he came in and just drilled phil fields so that was scary to see but you know fields is tough and he stayed in the game and fought through it uh but yeah i mean it's it's you know scary to see things like that um, especially considering that there was nothing Fields could have done there. He's, I mean, he truly didn't see the guy coming at all because, I mean, he wasn't blocked whatsoever on that as he blitzed into the backfield. So uh, really terrible performance by the offensive line. And, yeah, Trubisky, you have to imagine, had revenge on his mind, had a little extra um, motivation for that game playing at, you know, at Soldier Field and – he heard some boos from the fans when he entered the game, mostly cheers, but you heard some booing as well. And, you know, I'm sure he heard that and that might've motivated him even more, but yeah, he was terrific. You know, he played the entire first half like Dalton did and was tremendous, led the bills on touchdown drive after touchdown drive. And, 
um, yeah, Bills go on to win 41 to 15, and that game was really never, uh, never close. You know, we saw the Bears experience some special teams issues in that game as well. Um, gave up the punt return touchdown. Um, they muffed the punt too, didn't they? Yeah, muffed, muffed a, or muffed a kickoff. A, had a short kickoff return that led to a, a, a woeful. A series on offense for Dalton and the Bears in the first half. And, um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, not – I mean, we saw a couple of fumble recoveries uh, in the second half by, by the Bears. But, you know, for the most part, I mean, that was – it was pretty much all builds and, um, you know, really a game to forget for the Bears. But the biggest question moving forward is how is the offensive line – going to improve if it improves at all because it obviously has to be better than that or it's going to be a tough season regardless of who is is starting at quarterback for the Bears. Yeah, and going back to the muffed kick, it had to do with Javon Wims, who, I mean, he's really had an interesting year plus he threw that punch last year that kind of set the tone for the bears second half of the season and it kind of went downhill from there he's never lived up to his billing as a wide receiver riley ridley hasn't developed into the receiver that the bears have expected him to be and neither one of them is really turning heads right now in training camp which creates an opening in the bears receiver room for those final roster spots on the team and you have to wonder if Rodney Adams is taking one of those spots away based on how he's performed the first two weeks of the preseason. His 73-yard catch on Saturday for the touchdown was what they call the Randy Moss-style catches where he just goes up and takes the ball away from the defender and then races to the end zone. But the connection that he has with Justin Fields, I think, is what's ultimately going to get him in the get him on the opening week roster because if the Bears' plan is to get Justin Fields in there as early as possible and kind of let him run things from there. You're going to want as many pieces around him that he feels comfortable with. And Fields is very comfortable throwing the football to Adams, so you got to think that Adams has done enough to earn one of those final spots on the roster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's been, I guess, the I think it's safe to say the top, the primary pleasant surprise for the Bears so far through the first two preseason games. Um, yeah, I mean, because he had a couple – caught a couple deep passes from Fields in the opener and obviously had the 73-yard touchdown catch uh, against the Bills. So, yeah, he, he's been solid. Um, you know, he's a guy who's kind of hung around that, uh, for years in the league, never really gotten his big break. So this could be his chance. And, um, yeah, I, I believe he uh, – was his daughter born the night before the game? He, it's like he was playing with um, some extra motivation. Yeah, his newborn daughter – yeah, he, his daughter had just been born, so he did the uh, cradle, um, you know, like he's swaddling a baby celebration after he scored the touchdown. So that's pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, he's he's been very impactful. And, uh, you know, it's been a pleasant surprise. And, yeah, I mean, he could be end up being a solid 
deep threat for this Bears offense if he makes the team and has a chance to contribute. And before we switch topics here, I found more of the Trevor Story quotes for you. Um, Trevor Story is seriously going to listen to the Cubs in free agency if they are willing to be big players or if they have an, a plan in mind to execute a quick rebuild. Trevor Story went on to say, Wrigley Field is a special place, and when you come here, there's something different about it as opposed to every other stadium in baseball. This is a place that I can tell you I love playing here. The fans are great. It's a, it's a place that I look forward to coming to for sure. And if I could call this place, if I could call this place home for a long time, I wouldn't regret making my decision to come. Wow. Yeah. So that could be huge. I mean, he's, you know, he's a player who is, is really entering his prime. Um, you know, he's an all-star caliber player and um, somebody who, you know, presents a little more or a lot more power with the bat than Nico does. Uh, you know, also solid at, at getting on base as well. So, yeah, that would be big if they were able to get a young star. If the Cubs were able to sign a young star like that. I mean, that could really speed up the rebuild. And now we'll switch over to the big news of the day that it has not officially been announced yet, but it will be announced at 2 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. And that is the alliance between the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12. We've already seen Oklahoma and Texas now jumping ship from the Big 12 going to the SEC, which basically signals the end of the Big 12 because the remaining Big 12 schools in that conference are not going to stay together as an eight-team conference. They're going to go elsewhere. But now you have the ACC, the Pac-12, and the Big 10 forming this three-conference power alliance. Do you like the idea of these conferences doing that and – once this is officially announced later today, do you think this signals the end of college athletics as we know it in terms of basically following NCAA bylaws pretty much? Yeah, I mean, the NCAA has in the wake of, you know, players being able to make money um, via sponsorships and, and whatnot has obviously had a lot of its power taken away. Um you know, the, the NIL um, due to the NIL compensation that's now come into play. And, you know, and I mean, I, I, I think that it was almost inevitable that we would eventually see true super conferences, if you will. And, um, you know, the SEC pulling the trigger on, on, um, getting Texas and Oklahoma really seemed to be the tipping point. And, you know, this alliance seems to be a way to really stand up to the SEC in football and, and bolster these conferences and, you know, prevent, arguably prevent more teams from looking to bolt for the SEC or go independent or, or whatever. But, yeah, I, I'm sure we can still expect some conference expansion. We can expect these three conferences who are joining the alliance to recruit some outside teams uh 
you know, particularly Big 12 teams, maybe some American Athletic Conference teams, Mountain West teams, independent teams, whatever. Obviously, Maybe it's going to end up happening what you and I have both said for numerous times. This might mean that Notre Dame officially yeah. joins the right. ACC permanently for football because you look at the Big Ten teams they play throughout the year in Michigan and Michigan State. You look at the ACC teams they play in Boston College and then whoever else they play for the ACC schedule. And then you add all the Pac-12 teams that they play during the season. Nine of their 12 games come from those three conferences alone. Right. And if those three conferences are going to combine to make this alliance, there's no point for Notre Dame to be an independent anymore. They might as well just say, fine, we'll go to the ACC, but we'll still play the schedule that we typically play. Yeah, I mean, that TV deal is, is a big part of it obviously but it would be interesting to see if there's sort of an ultimatum issued with this alliance in terms of you know scheduling for Notre Dame um, maybe the ACC puts its foot down uh, regarding Notre Dame's membership and the other sports or something like that um, and you know it could push Notre Dame to join ACC as a full-fledged member to join join up in football as well so um, yeah, but I mean, this is obviously going to change college sports permanently, uh, make, you know, major changes that will never be undone. And, you know, I mean, football's king when it comes to college sports, of course, uh, you know, it's the big money maker and obviously the SEC is the king of college football and has been for many years now. And, um, you know, this is a way for these other three conferences, these other three major conferences to um, really, you know, fend for themselves, you know, not have to fend for themselves rather, but join up and, and um, you know, put up a good fight against the SEC, so to speak, and, and helping, you know, th these conferences remain – uh, real super competitive in football and remain national championship contenders. So we'll see all that comes of it. I mean, this alliance, there's still, it's still kind of nebulous in terms of, you know, what exactly that means and alliance and like what all will, well, what all it will entail. But I do think that we will see more conference expansion. Um, I think we'll see those three conferences follow suit with SEC adding Texas and Oklahoma. And, and like you said, I expect the Big 12 to dissolve. There's no point in those 18. You know, we've already heard uh, rumors about Kansas joining the Big 10. Obviously, the Big 10 would love to have Kansas's, you know, men's basketball program in his conference. Uh, so, you know, that's already been discussed. We've heard rumors in the past about some of the teams in the state of Texas and, and uh, you know, Oklahoma as well, maybe going to the Pac-12. So, you know, I expect that conference will more than likely dissolve, like you said, um, and those a lot of those teams will look to join, um, you know, other major conferences to remain relevant in – football so yeah i mean college football is changing in major ways college athletics as a whole uh changing in major ways so um and like you said a lot of it arguably has to do with the ncaa having less power than it once did 
And now we'll switch over to the NBA side of things where there really hasn't been much news surrounding the Bulls outside of Laurie Markkinen watch where the longer this process drags out where he does not find a new deal, the more likely he is to return to Chicago on the one-year qualifying offer, which although that may not make him happy, it's probably going to make Bulls fans happy because if they can bring Markkinen back on that qualifying offer, it's going to make this team even better than what they already are. But then you have the other news where NBA executives are grading all these offseason moves that the Bulls have made and grading pretty much all the moves that anybody has made. And they graded the DeMar DeRozan deal to Chicago as the worst move of the offseason that any team made, which I don't understand where that grade came from. And then they also graded the Bulls as the sixth worst squad in the Eastern Conference, which... If you do the math, that still puts him as the ninth seed in the Eastern Conference, which would be good enough to get him into the play-in tournament. So I guess, in hindsight, being the sixth-worst team in the Eastern Conference is not all that bad. But I think a lot of people are overlooking the Bulls right now, especially with Billy Donovan as the coach. And you saw just the you saw the transformation they made in his first year with that organization, with half of the amount of talent that he's going to have to work with this year. You can expect that this team is going to be contending for a playoff spot once the year starts to pretty much when the year finishes. And if Markkanen does come back and he's added to the piece that they've already acquired, I don't see any reason at all why this team will not finish in the top five in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I don't – I agree. And I don't understand the hate for the DeMar DeRozan move. I mean, he's still got plenty of good years ahead of him, still an elite scorer. Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, we talked last week at length, of course, about marketing and, and how he could be the X factor for this team and a difference maker come playoff time, but, uh, or, you know, in terms of playoff seating in general, the Bulls. but yeah, I certainly think this team should expect to be a viable contender in the East. I mean, you know, especially considering, they w- very well could have made the playoffs this past season, you know, if not for their late season swoon that inexplicably came after they acquired Vucevic at the trade deadline. Um, yeah, I mean, this year they should have serious aspirations of being contenders in the East uh, for sure. So I don't, and, you know, DeRozan will be a big part of that, having that elite scorer, that elite shooter. Um you know, solid defender as well. You know, he's he's still an elite scorer in my eyes, so um, that'll be integral in how he gels with uh, Levine and Vucevic, and, you know, they, they form sort of a big three of sorts in Chicago. Yeah, and I agree. I don't understand where the hate on this DeMar DeRozan trade is coming from. I mean, the only thing that I can think of is, him and Levine play the same exact position. But at the same time, so many teams in the NBA go with this three-guard offense now and kind of get away from the basketball that I was accustomed to where you have two guards, two forwards, and a center. And most teams now do these three-guard sets with two forwards with technically one center and one forward, but nobody plays actually center anymore. So it's basically a three-guard, two-forward offense now that 
what's going to be the problem if you have DeRozan and Levine playing the same position? They're just going to be three guards on the floor. Two of them can score 20-plus points per game, but all three guards are going to have on the floor can distribute to other players as well. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, base or excuse me, basketball, NBA basketball is obviously gravitated to being a guard dominant league, a guard dominated league. And, you know, that the center is sort of dying a slow death. Um, you know, the DeAndre Jordans and Andre Drummonds of the NBA in terms of pure centers who play like, you know, traditional centers always have. Um, or at least have for several decades prior to this guard-dominated revolution. Um, yeah, they're kind of a dying breed. There aren't, you know, there aren't many teams that really uh, revolve around, you know, utilizing a pure center. Um, you know, especially uh, utilizing them as a big piece in the offense. So the. Bulls can easily, I think, go with a go with a smaller lineup, a three guard lineup, and and um, you know it could arguably make them better. So uh, I'm not really concerned about that. And now we'll switch over to the Chicago Blackhawks, where it was a very sad day in the Blackhawks organization over the weekend, where 31 year old Jimmy Hayes passed away after celebrating his kid's birthday, which. It's sad in itself, but now it's kind of more they have to figure out what the cause of death was, and right now they don't believe it was any full play or anything in that regard, so that's a positive to take away from it. But obviously you have to give the condolences to Jimmy Hayes and his family, the entire Blackhawks organization, and another person that just died too young, being 31 years old, he played off and on with the Blackhawks the last several years, as well as the Rockford Ice Dogs. But when he did land on the Blackhawks roster, he was a fairly productive player for him. Yeah, I was sad to see. Unfortunately, there's been too much death surrounding the NHL this offseason, uh, whether it's you know young, young guys such as um, Hayes or, you know, old uh, retired players, um, you know, legends, if you will. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was more sad news out of the NHL. So condolences to his family and um, may he rest in peace. And now we'll switch over to the Chicago Fire, where their ultimate Achilles heel continues to – rear its ugly head where they simply cannot find ways to win on the road. And it's just becoming a complete mystery as to why this team cannot win away from Chicago. They held a two to one lead against inter Miami CF on Wednesday, only to give up two goals in the final 25 minutes, including one in extra time to lose three to two. They played toe to toe with one of the best teams in the Eastern in the, in the conference in Orlando only to lose that game one to nothing. So on a positive side, they're at least playing with a lot of these better teams that they would have been getting blown out by early in the season. But now it all boils down to finding a way to win on the road. And just a week ago, they were sitting in 10th place in the Eastern Conference, I think only five points out of a playoff spot. And here they are again, now third from the bottom and losing ground just because of a two-game stretch where they couldn't pick up a point. 
But now they're on a long stretch of road games where ultimately it's going to ultimately it's going to, to seal this team's fate. If they can't find a way to win at least one or two games out of their final four road games on this stretch, I think it's safe to say that they will miss the playoffs again this year just because they're going to be too far back with too much ground to make up and not enough time. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, that's been the bugaboo for them all season really is is not being able to uh, win matches on the road. And, you know, now with this in the midst of this six-game road trip, uh, they're off to, like you said, no and two start. And, um, yeah, this could make or break their season. Um, you know, we've seen an uptick in offense and, and um, improved scoring from Chicago and this, you know, more legitimate ta- attacking and, and shots on goal um, in recent weeks. But, you know, if the fire can't find ways to win on the road, uh, then it's not going to matter because, you know, I mean, the way they played early in the season uh, put them in kind of a hole hole anyway they had to dig themselves out of. So uh, still a long way to go in the regular season, you know, stretches until early November. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, if if Chicago doesn't improve – in road games and road matches, then, um, you know, that they can probably forget about making the playoffs. And before we close up shop today, I will let you give the listeners your Chicago sky insight for the week. Yeah. So the Chicago sky, uh, of course, first game back, like I talked about first game back, uh, from the Olympic break, I mentioned this last week, they won the thriller at home in overtime against the defending champions, the Seattle Storm, uh, but then lost to the Dallas Wings at home. And then uh, since we've last been on air, lost to the Minnesota Lynx at home, lost 101 to 95 in that one. So tough two-game losing skit at home, and now they have um, five similar to the fire they're on a long road trip five consecutive games at home um, including back to excuse me five consecutive games on the road including uh, two straight at Seattle coming up so that's going to be tough Um, so yeah I mean similar to the fire they'll have to find ways to get some wins on the road here and get back on a winning track Um, yeah I mean obviously after you know, winning that thriller uh, at home against the storm. I don't. I doubt they expected to lose um, two straight to at home to you know back to back games to the wings and the links. So um, yeah, I have tonight Tuesday night they're at the Atlanta Dream, and um, yeah, they'll look and then they'll play two in a row at the storm on Friday and Sunday. So they'll look to. Um, you know, pick things up there. And then to close out the road trip, they're at the Mercury next Tuesday and then at uh, at the um, Phoenix Mercury, that is, and then at the Las Vegas Aces next Thursday. So to close it out. So, yeah, they'll, they'll look to get back on a winning track um, here during this five-game road trip. 
All right, sounds good. And that's all the time Cole and I have for you today. We'll be back next Tuesday around the same time. And Cole, take care and have a great rest of your week. All right, man. You too. Thanks. Talk to you soon.